Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Topic today is dealing with grief at work, and our guest is John Santoro. Late in 2000, 10-year-old Paula Santoro's last words to her father were, Daddy, I want to sit in that chair. His last words to her were, Paula, I love you. Since then, John has focused on helping others deal with work during times of grief. A vice president of communications with Fitzer and a board member of TCF, John has written book chapters and op-eds about the intersection of grief and career. In 2006, his family was featured in a PBS special, Keeping Kids Healthy, nominated for an Emmy Award. Um, and I think he's the communications vice president for Pfizer. Right. Name. Okay. Welcome, John, to our show. Thank you very much. Thank you, Gloria and Heidi, and, and thank you for all you do for this uh, uh, this widespread community. Oh, thanks, John. It's great to have you on. And, um, John, could you tell us a little bit about your daughter, Paula? Sure. Uh, and I'll uh, pause. Life and Michael's life, uh, my son, are intertwined because they were twins. So, oh, I didn't uh, know this. Yeah, they were born on September 1st in 1990 uh, in, here in New York. Um, uh, you know, they were a little bit premature, but basically healthy. Um, and we brought them home after a few weeks in the hospital. Uh, we noticed uh, after a while that Paula wasn't growing at the same rate that Michael was and that, uh, you know, began taking her to various doctors to see what was the, the issue. And it it took a long time to figure out what the issue was, and the issue was a, a very, very rare disease called Cushing syndrome. Uh, she suffered from her uh, adrenal glands creating much more of a stress hormone than a normal person would have, sometimes even uh, ten times the level of stress hormone, which put a tremendous amount of stress on her body, also stunted her growth, and, and led to a number of other uh, very difficult uh, uh, symptoms for a, a young child to deal with. Uh, now, tell me, tell me uh, uh, something. With twins, uh, was it unusual to have one twin have it and one not? Did they have any idea of why that would happen or what causes it? Yeah, eventually they figured out that it was a genetic defect that uh, Paula, they knew Paula had, but Michael, as far as we know, does not have. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've more recently figured out that it's a genetic defect that I have. Um, this is the, uh, the the glory of this looking into the syndrome of uh, you know genetics. Uh, but in any case, Paula ended up uh, going to the NIH, National Institutes of Health, for treatment. Um, literally only a few hundred cases of this uh, particular pediatric Cushing syndrome exist or have been known to exist, although it's a little more common kind of in middle-aged women. And um, she went through the treatment, which was the removal of her adrenal glands, but unfortunately, because of the amount of damage that had been done to her body over a number of years, she died uh, literally a week later, very suddenly, from pancreatic failure. So this was on December 10, 2000. Uh, she was 10 years old. So that was a total surprise. It was. She had come home from the hospital. She was doing well. She had been in the hospital for a month. She was doing well. We had a nurse come in every day to visit with her, and you know everything went well. And then literally, she got sick one, one night and died the next morning. Wow! Uh, in the hospital, in the uh, in the uh, intensive care unit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, it's been, as as all your listeners know, a tremendously difficult journey. Um, my wife Pam and my uh, son Michael, we've 
uh, you know, bonded together to try and, and get through this. Uh, and we have been inspired by Paula. Uh, she was a terrific, uh, terrific person. She was very generous. Uh, she was a very smart person. She loved to read. She was very concerned about the poor and the environment. Um, she was a good athlete uh, until her body really got ravaged by the disease. Now, was she in public school? She was. She was able to. We were able to keep her in public school. She was mainstreamed, so to speak. And you know, one of, you were talking about uh, Gloria and Heidi. You were talking about the difficulty of dealing with teens. I think uh, and the loss of a brother or a sister. Uh, it becomes particularly acute when you're talking about a twin brother um, mm -hmm. uh, or sister, and particularly in this relationship between Michael and and Paula, because Michael was larger and and to a larger extent healthier than Paula was, and he considered him her himself to be her protector in a way, you know, at right. school. So, mm -hmm. you know, he was always helping her. She was short of stature. So it was hard for her to do some things. And, and you know, when she died, um, it became a real, more of a difficult thing, I think, for her than a lot of kids go through, for him, than a lot of kids go through just because of the fact that he kind of considered himself to a certain extent to be her protector, you know, and just as to a large extent parents considered themselves to be be the protector of their children, and no matter how the, what the circumstances are, there's always this sense of grief, loss, and guilt to a certain extent. Well, and I, I've, a friend of mine, Elizabeth Davida Rayburn, wrote a book on on sibling loss and interviewed 77 siblings, and her chapter on twins is so powerful mm -hmm. because I never realized there was a difference between twin loss and any other kind of loss until I read people that had been twins and lost their twin. It was like they almost lost an extension of themselves. And like they say, we almost knew our, we had even more of a bond with our twin because we knew them nine months before everybody else. Right, right. And I never thought about the uniqueness of having a twin. Yeah, well, I, yeah. I was just thinking of the uniqueness for parents, too, of having twins. There, that is a, is a stressful from my friends have told me, you know, having twins, one cries and then the other. And there's a whole thing about raising twins from birth anyway, isn't there? There is. I mean, I think the uh, it's, it's difficult for parents. Obviously, it, it, you know, it's not just twice to work in the early stages. It seems like it's uh, four times the work for some reason. We were always up with one of them, and uh, when we were first getting started, um, the bond between twins is so exceptionally strong. And I'll tell you one really quick story to illustrate this. When Paula was in the hospital in the intensive care unit just hours before she died, um, Pam, my wife, was there with her staying overnight, and I was at home a few miles away staying with Michael. And Michael woke up at, uh, at a very early hour, uh, 4.30 or 5 o'clock, uh, saying that he had had a visit from Paula to, to say goodbye. Oh, my God. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then literally just uh, three hours later, uh, Paula did say goodbye to uh, to the world. So um, there's this just this tremendous bond, which I think is not very well, still not very well understood, and I know um, there's been some research into this, and I know, Heidi, you probably have uh, done some research yourself, but it just seems like we don't completely understand how twins interact and deal with each other, and it's particularly difficult in, in these times of losses. Absolutely. And at least this kind of story, what Michael experienced, is what I've heard twins say. I had a twin, I, I knew a twin that's, that's sister died in a plane wreck. As her sister's plane was crashing, the surviving twin felt like she was dying, and she had to pull over to the side of the road. Yeah. And it was at the very time that her sister yeah. was dying. So, yes, you hear these really amazing stories about 
like you said, the bond between twins. One of the things that I think is key here when we're talking about grief in the workplace is the fact that this, even though Paula had been sick, this was a sudden death. Yes. And could you talk a little bit about how that was for you to go back to work and how, how long did you, was it before you did, and, and talk a little bit about it? Sure. This was a very uh, interesting time in our lives because besides Paula being ill, uh, at that point, Pfizer was purchasing the company that I worked for, which was Warner Lambert Company. And um, there was a lot of, as you might imagine, in any kind of acquisition, a lot of changes, people leaving jobs, people coming, and, you know, a lot of people are, are identifying themselves through their work and through what's happening to their company. I had just literally started at Pfizer, um, and I was the new person on the block, so to speak. I did not have much of a support network here. Uh, I was just moving into Manhattan in terms of my workload and my work life. So you left some uh, fellow employees that you knew? Yeah. It... yeah, actually most of the people that I uh, worked with at Warner Lambert had decided to leave the company, so it was a kind of a difficult transition. I moved over to Pfizer. The Pfizer folks were very, very welcoming, uh, but I literally had just started here uh, for a few weeks when Paula uh, went to the NIH to, for treatment and then uh, was still off of work when she died. Uh, my company was uh, terrific to me. I mean, they were uh, they were as supportive as they uh, one would expect them to be. The one thing that was very interesting, uh, and I write I write about this in a in a book by Bill Jensen called "What Is Your Life's Work." As soon as Paula died, one of the first calls I made was to my relatively new boss at that point, uh, a gentleman uh, named Ray, and you know I called him. It was a Saturday morning. He was out mowing the lawn, and you know they brought him in and. I'm telling him that, you know, Paul had just died, and all of a sudden I just start going through all the projects that I'm, you know, working on. What's going through my mind is i got to offload my projects for some reason, you know, to him and so that the work somehow can continue, which is, you know, the last thing that's on his mind, he's trying to help me just deal with this stunning shock. And it was just mm -hmm. a product of being stunned. In some ways you're trying to stay professional, right? I was trying to not only stay professional, but just stay grounded on, you know, right. something that I knew about. And so he's crying on the other side, and I'm just, you know, offloading to him all the projects that I was working on and who can do this and who can do that. And I, I think about it today, and, I, you know, everybody in the grief community, everyone who's gone through this loss has done something really bizarre, you know, as yeah. the news. <laughs> exactly. And that's my, that was my really bizarre well, thing. And I'm also my thinking, board. John, if you took care of business first, then you could take care of the business of grieving. You yeah. You took care of your work business first, get that out of the way, and now I can... Really fall apart and really think of my daughter. Yeah, that's off off my plate. That so. compartmentalizing, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. But you know, I was very lucky, and I don't want to, you know, talk too much about work here. But I, I was very lucky in that the company was exceptionally supportive of me. Um, but I've done a lot of work with companies that have not been very supportive of, of folks going through this process. And uh, certainly in the compassionate friends conventions, you just hear. Uh, probably 10 horror stories for every beneficial story you hear about companies uh, dealing with people who are bereaved. Um, yeah, one of, one of the things we always hear is that, you know, they give them such a short time. It's, mm -hmm. it, that's almost funeral time, not bereavement time. Yeah, you know? yeah, and uh, that is a, a really difficult issue. Uh, companies just have not been able yet, I think, to get their arms around the fact that this is not a process that takes five days or seven days. Mm -hmm. um, one of the great Dilbert moments I've heard about is a uh, an employee who had a loss and called her boss, and her boss said, uh, could you rearrange the funeral for another day because I can't make it on the particular day that you've scheduled it? Mm 
Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, yeah, horror story. Yeah. Horror stories like that you hear all the time. So you got, um, you felt like you got enough time off, and did you go in uh, some days and leave early, or did you just take time off? How did you do it? That's what I was wondering. Yeah, I took about five. They, they First of all, they told me not to come back until I felt that I was ready to come back, uh, which was mm-hmm. a, a fabulously uh, generous thing to do. Um, I took about five weeks off, which is almost unheard of basically now in terms of uh, a lot of companies. Pfizer has been relatively flexible in that regard. When I did come back, I, uh, I did come back part-time at first, which is really important because grief is tiring, yes. as, you, as you know. Uh, a lot of people who are going through grief just can't concentrate very long. Uh, so the idea would be I'd come in in the morning and I'd, I'd typically try and get some things done and I'd go home in the afternoon. And it took me, you know, almost like eight weeks before I felt that I was back on a so-called normal schedule. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful that you could transition slowly back into the workforce. Yeah, it's very unusual too, and and that's mm-hmm. you know one of the issues I think companies have to start dealing with is just finding ways to help people uh, get through this in a better sense because it's a ter- it's a terrific retention. I, not to get the business cases first, but it's a terrific retention tool. Grieving parents, as as you know, and grieving siblings, remember people who are kind to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I think we all divide the world after this experience to people who were kind to you and people who maybe weren't as kind as you, you thought they should be. And and you have new friends and lose old friends. And you have new friends and lose old friends. And um, I just feel that the uh, companies who can capitalize, and I hate to use the word capitalize, but companies who take better care of their employees when they're going through this grief process get in tr- tremendously loyal, dedicated employees in the end. Mm-hmm. That's a wonderful thought. Now, did you stay with the same job that you had, and you know? Yes, for, I didn't, I, I, so you I, haven't changed at all. You're still doing. You were still doing the same responsibilities, and well, I, I transferred the. Uh, I was the chairman's speechwriter at uh, Warner Lambert, mm-hmm. and I transferred. They asked me to be the chair, the speechwriter for the new chairman who was coming into Pfizer uh, at that point. And so basically, I was doing that job, which, as you might expect, is is a relatively high-pressure job to begin with. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, um, I was really helped in the fact that I, I was able to work and com- compartmentalize my life to a certain extent, come in, put in some intense hours for a few hours a day, and then transition. And, and how did you do that, John? I mean, for those of us, people that are out there in the workforce, did you just tell yourself, okay, right now I've got to put Paula on hold and I'm going to think about work? Was it kind of just mental tapes or... It, it was pretty much just a kind of a mental discipline exercise where I just had to, you know, focus on something other than than Paul. Now I will say this: I uh, I had times when I had crying spells at work. I had times when I had just had to close the door and and uh, you know just about scream my brains out. Um, I had times where uh, I could not fulfill the deadlines that I needed to fulfill. I was very fortunate that the company was. Uh, responsive to me there it took me about nine months before i i had a day where i didn't think of paula during the day at one point and i remember at the end of the day reminding myself geez i got through the day and i didn't you know think of her last moments or i didn't relive that those awful time in the hospital or whatever that to me was like a breakthrough you know that was a, a, a chance for me to see that i could make it through this really difficult time. Mm-hmm. 
I remember um, my husband had just started a new business two weeks before Scott died. Mm. And uh, about, uh, it might have been about nine months or a little longer, he came home one day and he said, you know, I think we're going to lose the business. Wow. He said, I was just looking at what we're doing and it's not working. <laughs> he said, I feel like I just woke up. Yeah, I mean, that's how you do feel. I mean, people say that they kind of sleepwalk to a certain extent or they just not going not just going through the motions but basically not really remembering much about those first nine months and frankly i don't remember much about my first nine months although i wrote uh what were pretty good speeches i had a good good performance report all the all the things lined up the right way but i can't tell you that i remember much other than the real raw pain of you know trying to get through a work day and I can't imagine how it's like for people who are literally forced back to work because of uh, situations with their companies where they have five days or two weeks or whatever and have to kind of get their act together and get back to work. It's a really tough time, and I think companies could do a much better job at it. Mm-hmm. I was uh, teaching at the University of Rochester when Scott was killed, and I had nursing students that I was supervising for the semester. Um and I went back to work after two weeks and finished with the students. But uh, uh, by summer, I was, um, you know, ready to grieve. The PBS special, Keeping Kids Healthy, that you were on, has been nominated for an Emmy. You said that there's some way that people can see it or get it online? or Yes, they can. They can go to the Montefiore Hospital website in uh, New York City or just Google Keeping Kids Healthy. It'll bring you to the website, and you can actually see, uh, click on the segment. You can watch the entire segment which has uh, one segment about a, two kids dealing with a parent, a parent loss and then um, Michael dealing with the loss of Paula, um, which is just a tremendous seven-minute segment wow. um, that I would recommend for anybody who's going through this grief journey. That's it sounds great. like something that would be incredible for professionals to watch as well. I believe it would be, and, and mm-hmm. Montefiore uh, was terrific in, in this. It's uh, hosted by Dr. Winnie King. And it has some uh, professionals who uh, comment on what's happening inside the uh, the grief process. That's great, and we will also put that on the griefblog.com also, so um, that reference to that. So, John, getting back to the topic that we were talking about, um, grief uh, dealing with grief at work, I wanted to ask you um, for those people out there who haven't had the time off or whose spouses haven't. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, first of all, you know, my heart goes out to a lot of folks who are just forced by circumstances of their jobs or economics to get back to work very quickly. I think the the best thing you can do is to, um, again, try and uh, preserve for yourself some safe spaces inside your work if you can. It may be as simple as finding a place to take a coffee break by yourself or finding a very uh, responsive coworker who's willing to listen to you. Or sometimes here in New York City, the best therapy is just going outside and walking around uh, for a few minutes before you have to go back to work. Some way along the way, you need to find some space for yourself, and if you can do that, it makes it somewhat easier. Uh, time, of course, heals some of the wounds, but uh, you have to do your best to try and find uh, a safe space for yourself. And what about men crying at work? Have you got any thoughts on that? And, and uh, yeah, do you have any thoughts? I know some people have said it's very difficult. I, I think, you know, there's a lot of... Uh, discussion about whether men grieve differently than than women and certainly in our society um, women get a little more license to cry Mm -hmm. um, in in terms of uh, the workplace Um, 
given the enormity of the loss that we had, I just decided that it is what it is. You know, if I need to cry, I need to cry, and people can either watch or excuse themselves or whatever. Um, I just stopped. Uh, I just close the door and do what I need to do, uh, or and not worry too much about anything like that. But I know for a lot of places, it's very hard for men to express their emotions around grief. Um, again, sometimes if you can find a very responsive coworker that you can call on every so often to just go in, close the door, and, and have a good cry. It's certainly helpful. I was going to ask you more about coworkers. What could, it sounds like one thing they could do that would be helpful would be to be there with you in times of need. And, and what are some other things that they could do? A lot of times what we, my mom and I hear on the show is coworkers don't know what to say, and they're afraid to say anything, so they don't say anything. That's, they don't want to upset the yeah. person working. That's correct. I mean, the perception is that, if, that you know, you're supposed to come back to work, and if they don't mention it, then things will be okay, and it's kind of this facade that obviously is not sustainable, you know. So I think what coworkers can do are a couple of things. One is to always make certain that they uh, remember the child and mention the child's name and ask questions about the child because that's what we want to talk about. I mean, we, as you all know, given the experiences you've had and, and the experiences many of your listeners have had, have had, you just want to talk about your kid. You know, you just want to remember good things or you want to be able to relate to things that are happening in the workplace and, and to the life place. You know, one of, one of the problems, and I mentioned this on the show another time, is um, I took, uh, a, after it had been a year, I was on a healthcare team that went around a hospital and psychiatrists and everything, and I took, my husband did a photo album with Scott, and I took it to work to, um, the first year he died, and people were horrified. Yeah, I, I know. It's it, You know, we're trying to get through this cultural barrier of, dealing with the bereaved as some sort of separate community. And, you know, you are separated by the circumstances of what's happened to a certain extent. But um, one of the things I think that's valuable for um, for companies to do and for managers to do is for the manager of the person who is bereaved to take kind of the lead in getting, helping people rally themselves around the person who is bereaved and helping that person have a, a better reintegration into work and I, I often get called, and I'm sure a lot of folks uh, get called, it's almost like an informal counselor. Okay, this has happened in my department. Mm-hmm. One of my uh, colleagues has lost a child. How do I now, you know, deal with it? How do I make it better for that person? And I say, you know, one of the things you might even think about doing is having a meeting before the person comes back to work of mm-hmm. people around that person of how you're going to deal with uh, questions, how you're going to deal with the crying spells, how you're going to deal with the uh, the loss of concentration, who's going to pick up some of the work maybe, you know, what can you do to make it an easier re- reintegration. And how about for our folks out there um, who have a more difficult work situation, they may have to go educate the, the workplace even though it's kind of early for them. They may have to go say to somebody, you know, sometimes maybe I'll have to get up and leave a meeting. Don't worry about me. Yes, yeah, so you, you bring up a great point, and I, you know, I'll, I'll refer folks to the Compassionate Friends um, organization in terms of uh, brochures and so forth. Uh, you know, one of the things I did was just get a bunch of the brochures about uh, dealing with an employee who is grieving and just leave them on my desk, so you know people could pick them up and just read about what it might be for me to be having to leave a meeting or uh, you know starting to tear up during some sort of uh, presentation or being less than concentrating on the on the business at hand. So uh, that's really a tough thing for grieving parents to do, but unfortunately 
for now, it has to be done sometimes. Yeah, yeah and, great idea. And you can go online, uh, the CompassionateFriends.org website, and you can pick up those brochures. And also, Compassionate Friends would be happy to send you a bunch of brochures. Yeah, and it almost sounds like you, you, you know, most companies could benefit from an in-service training, some outside consultant like you that is, a, that is an expert on, you know, work and grief to come in and give a training to the management team on how to deal with grief in the workplace so that they can then educate their staff. Yeah, I think some sort of inter- intervention like that would be a good thing. And, that, again, I think part of the problem is there's a lack of trained counselors to a certain extent. And a lot of counselors who deal with employee assistance issues aren't as skilled as they might want to be in terms of dealing with these localized uh, grief issues. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because um, particularly with the, the death of a child, some people get really upset about it, thinking that something like that could happen to their own child, and they don't want to get near it. Yeah, there's a there's certainly a self protection um, factor here. It's almost impossible. First of all, it's impossible for people to fathom unless they've been through it. Secondly, they just you know there's a certain amount of denial that goes around it. Um, again, I was fortunate in that. Uh, believe it or not, when when uh, Paula passed, uh, my boss's boss who was a senior vice president at that point, uh, a very nice gentleman named Luke Clemente, had lost actually a 16-year-old daughter in a uh, in an accident. Wow. He wrote me a fantastic letter, which I, I still treasure. You know, uh, sharing his experiences and and encouraging me to to uh, come to work when I was ready and to and to you know honor Paula's life through my work. That's great. Well, you know, I think that's one of the things we're doing right here on the show, too, is we're sharing our experiences with those folks out there who are more newly breathed than we are, and we're saying in the workplace, whatever, you'll make it. Here are some ideas, you know, that um, we might have for you. And um, and as I said, you may have to do some education in the workplace, which is very difficult. Yeah, I, I I'm starting to find, and this is this is very good. I'm starting to find people slowly but surely in the in the six years that we've been dealing with grief, this kind of grief, coming around um, more and more to the idea that this is not something to be denied or to not talk about. This is a issue that is really important for us to deal with because we want this employee not only to be a, you know a, uh, to get through the experience, but also to be a productive employee. Um, and companies and managers in particular at kind of a grassroots level, I think, are starting to understand it better than companies in particular are at maybe the 30,000-foot level. Mm-hmm. Heidi, I wanted to ask you a, a question before we went to break, and, and John thinking about it too, is how about grief in the workplace at school? As, as a student? You were, yeah. Well, I don't know how what Michael went through, and it will be interesting to hear this, but my perspective, for me, I was in college, and my professors didn't care that I had a brother that died. They wanted my work done, and they wanted it done in a timely fashion. Mm. So um, that was an issue, and after two weeks, they became less and less sensitive about it. John was talking about the more um, adult workplace, but what about the kid workplace? You know, how do you were saying about college that your well, professors didn't care? And I want to chime in as far as teens, too, for all the parents out there and children. Parents have more control over their schedules than kids do, and they can choose oftentimes to scale back. But teens often and children go to school, and they're expected just to keep going as usual, 
and keep their rigorous schedule as usual. And I'm always telling parents, if there's places in your child's life that you can, they can scale back a little bit, let them. Because as John has said, grief is an amazing amount of work, and they need to, to take some time to scale back. So I don't know what Michael's experience was in school, John. I'm sure you can address that a little bit. Well, as I started in the beginning of the program, we were talking about the fact that, to a certain extent, Michael considered himself uh, to be Paula's protector, you know, for, mm-hmm. for better or worse. Uh, and they were both in the same class. We actually, you know, we tried to separate them into two classes at one point, and, and Paula was just despondent. She wanted to be back with her brother, so the school made an exception. Uh, one of the issues... So they were twins, and they were in the same classroom. In what grade? Um, the, Paula died at, in grade four. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paula did, yeah. So it's one of the things that happens, of course, when a child dies in, a, in an elementary school is there's usually a lot of support right away. I mean, there's grief counselors, there's teachers, there's, you know, the kids kind of rally around uh, the issues. And um, we got, you know, wonderful memories of Paula sent to us from the schools. We had, uh, they brought in counselors, and they helped the kids as well as Michael through this very difficult time. Uh, and the problem, of course, is that that drops off pretty quickly. You know, the, the kids you get back into a routine, and then you do have to deal with very hard times, such as the anniversaries of a death or a major holiday, that bring up um, very difficult memories for a child and for the parents. So uh, it's important, I think, for schools to remember that grief is not just a, you know, again, not just a two-week process. It's a process that teachers have to be sensitive to to a certain extent, as life goes on. And sometimes they're not. And I'll have to tell you that I went into my kids' grade school and did a program for them. Uh, they let me come into the health health class and do a program on grief and loss for the kids because uh, there wasn't a lot of education for them. And uh, one of Heather's teachers said she was 14 and her te- I, she was having trouble in math and she was a good math student. And, and I went in and talked to the teacher and he said, well, we've all had parents die. Well, and one of the things that we did. Connection, right? Yeah, one of the things we that Michael did the first year after Paula died, he was very upset that there wasn't a whole lot of people who remembered um, Paula's anniversary of her death. And uh, the next year, he re- actually wrote a, t- a letter to his teachers that said, you know, on this particular day, I may not be very good at concentrating. I may need to leave the room. I may need to, you know, do some other things to help him through that day, and he uh, sent a letter to his teachers, and his teachers responded. They were very good to him. They made sure he knew that if he needed to leave the class at any time that he could do that. Uh, They um, helped him through this particular time frame. Uh, So it's important if the parents can get children to talk to the teachers directly about how they're feeling and what needs to be done to help them. I think that's a really important thing. Yeah, and so that education program, you know, process. Let's know that anniversary dates are coming up and that these times are going to be hard. Let's talk about those anniversary and holidays when you're at work, John. What what do you suggest our folks out there? Well, for one, you know, it's, for one thing, I don't, I I make certain people know that it's December 10th is a sacred day. I don't come to work um, and I spend the day with my family. We give Michael the option, by the way, of going to school or not. He's, He's typically picked the option of actually going to school. Um, I, so, I don't blame them. Yeah, I, 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 <laughs> I don't blame them either. My brave parents are going to school. No, I'm kidding, but, you know, that's one of our issues. It's, it's hard, right? Right. It's so hard to watch saying. your parents, you know, sit around all day and, and grieve. It is. Which it's is hard. what happens on the anniversary days. Yeah. Um, and particularly the birthdays are particularly difficult because, of course, we're, we're celebrating Michael's birthday of 
oh, September first, nineteen ninety, and we're you know grieving the fact that Paula had the same birthday and is no no longer here. Oh, that's a with, challenge. How do you yeah. do that? It is. Uh, we try and you know we try and make it certain for Michael that this is a day that we're going to celebrate. Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes we move the celebration to a weekend where he's going to have a chance to spend more time with his friends anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, you know, he knows as well as we do that some there's a the flip side to this that you know Paula was is no longer with us and it's her birthday too. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, anniversaries, the holidays are very hard. Um, I think whatever when we talk about work life balance and work life fit. Whatever colleagues can do to help people who are bereaved through the holidays, even if it's just you know asking what a, a holiday memory might be of your child, or you know what did you do during the holidays when when Paula was with us, or it uh, it helps a lot. Uh, that, that's and, incredible, isn't and, it? Because people don't think that you want to talk about that. They yeah, don't want no. to make you sad, and that's exactly what you want to talk about. So. Right, and and yeah. you know we all breathe a sigh of relief when we get through the holidays. I'm sure. Yeah. Many of you do too, but um, whatever, whatever your colleagues can do to help you is is really important. Well, John, it's uh, almost time to close the show, and I wanted to ask you if you had one piece of advice for people out there, what would it be? Well, I I think uh, my advice is actually to companies, and, I, and I'd, mm-hmm. I'd ask that they really look at this in the same way they looked at childcare over the years and partner benefits over the years, and spend less energy really on kind of making the the business case for your efforts and more more on clarifying how the company will respond and to a, a grief situation. Um, there's some really good work that's been done by Arlene Johnson around this, and I hope that companies uh, take a more enlightened approach to the grieving parent or sibling. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And also, if you're a brief person out there and you're looking for maybe a cause, you can work in that kind of area of educating your own company and helping them to understand what brief parents do need. Mm-hmm. Well, it's time to close our show now, and I want to thank our guest, John Santoro. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thanks, John. It's been wonderful having you on the show. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.